2: So I joked around with this next guest that he's the Dos Equis guy, the, the most interesting man in the world. He's only 41 years old, yet he has lived an extraordinary life. He has served as a Green Beret doing tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. Then he went on to the University of Texas to play on the football team as a walk-on at age 29, while also serving in the National Guard at the same time. Then he went on to play in the NFL for the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, the guy's accomplished so much, lived so many interesting lives, and then got into acting as well, which we'll get into in the conversation. And then he had this other interesting moment in his life. He wrote this open letter to Colin Kaepernick and the Army Times, which then led to Colin Kaepernick, inviting him to fly out and have a conversation with him. It's also interesting what he's done after leaving the NFL, after retiring from the military. He started this incredible organization called Merging Vets and Players. And it marries these worlds that he's lived in, kind of trying to find your purpose in life. And that's what this organization is geared to. And then through this incredible organization, he created a movie. It was his directional debut recently, this movie that is out called MVP. I'm telling you, he has just lived such an interesting life a life of purpose doing so much for our country just a truly incredible and inspiring guy i hope you enjoy this conversation with nate boyer the dosetti guy the most interesting man in the world you quite literally have one of the most interesting life stories green beret college football nfl hollywood Why, why do you think you've been able to navigate so many industries
3: i don't know how well i've been able to navigate them all but i definitely have had a strong interest in all of them and i mean to be completely honest when i was when I was in my early 20s and you know, made the decision to join the military uh, before doing football, before really pursuing film and television, all that stuff, I, I didn't have a ton of confidence. I mean, those are things that I wouldn't have actually uh, genuinely attempted or believed that I could do without uh, that time in the military um, for various reasons. I, I mean, it, 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 first of all, taught me how to, how to work. <laughs> it taught me how to... Uh, Communicate with people and sort of do my best to understand uh, whether it's a culture or an industry or something that I, I don't really know anything about. Um, but but also it just developed confidence that you know why not go try these things? Why not you know fully pursue them? I mean, life is short. Uh, if it's something that you're passionate about and interested in, like what are you doing? Uh, you know, not going after that. But I think that's I think that's crazy. Uh, If you were were able to, you know, if you have uh, the the access and and opportunity, uh, who cares if you fail at the end of the day, really? So those are things that kind of lessons that I learned along the way and things that I didn't uh, necessarily. I mean, I didn't know at 23 before I signed on the dotted line and and took the oath, you know, uh, to join the military.
2: Well, and what's interesting is before you joined the military, you had moved out to Los Angeles. You were trying to get involved in show business. You get a call from your mom about 9-11 watching what was happening with the World Trade Center. And it seems like that sort of changed the trajectory of your future. It made you look at the world a little bit differently, different career ambitions. Sort of talk about how that changed the trajectory of your life.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think 9-11 was such a defining moment for so many of us. And Obviously, that definition varies on who you talk to and and their relationship to that day. Uh, I was in I was living in Los Angeles at the time, far from New York, um, and far from really feeling connected to uh, anything that was going on in the world outside of my bubble. Uh, I, yeah, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, my parents were really hardworking people. You know, they they uh, I believe the first two in their families to uh, to finish college. And, um, you know, my, uh, my mother getting her PhD at, at UC Berkeley in an uh, engineering field that was, that was definitely mostly, you know, male dominated. And, um, my dad was a racehorse veterinarian at golden gate fields out there and, uh, just really, really hardworking people. And for whatever reason, I mean, I, you know, we all rebel in some way, <laughs> my rebellion of choice was just to, uh, you know, not work hard (laughs) to, to sort of like, I think I had a lot of talent. Um, and and I, you know, I, I, I always tested well, but I didn't do well in school. If that makes sense. I I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't, uh, apply myself and I didn't, uh, I didn't do what was necessary. And and also I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't even know what I was into. And after high school, I moved to San Diego. I worked on a fishing boat for a while and and I enjoyed it because I was making my own way, kind of doing it my way. Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't really ready for college. I, I took some firefighting classes, was sort of interested in that, but, but not really. It was like, that's an honorable job. I'm 19. I'm a kid. I don't feel like I have an honorable bone in my body. Like I, I can't be a firefighter. Um, and so I just sort of, you know, turned away from that too. And then eventually found myself in Los Angeles, as you said, interested in, in, in show business and film and television, like storytelling. It was something that I thought it was cool. It was like, man, I don't have a cool story myself, but if I can tell other people's stories, you know, how cool is that? And that's where that sort of initially came from. Um, and then when nine 11 happened, I mean, yeah, I, 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 it was, it was very early in the morning. I was living in this real small apartment and I answered the phone and with my mom in the other line, and she's, you know, just telling me to turn the TV on and I flipped it on. And, you know, I saw what so many of us saw, one tower, I believe, was already down. The other one was engulfed in flames. And I was just like, what am I looking at? Uh, uh, kind of at a loss for words. Like, I feel like I am right now. Even every time I try to take myself back to that day and envision that, and I'm just sitting there watching it on a 19 inch TV screen, I cannot imagine being there. Um, it was just this shock. And like, what, the, the, one of the first things that really hit me is like, what are you doing with your life? Like, who, who what are you a part of? do you even have, uh, a care in the world? I mean, do do you like you're here? We're all here. I, 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 and I even believed this at the time. Amazingly. We're all here for some type of reason. uh, but what is your reason? Like, what, what, what are you doing? Um, look around, look at yourself and figure out where you can do something, uh, somewhat positive or, um, impactful. And eventually that, that, uh, that took me overseas uh, and doing some relief work um, after a a couple of years of kind of just searching, you know, traveling is whenever I could, I'd work odd jobs, save my money up and then go backpacking somewhere and just try to figure out where is my place in the world. And and I ended up, I was doing some relief work in the Darfur and it really changed my life, that trip And, and being around people that absolutely had nothing, but were just so enamored with Americans. And so, um, grateful that someone would leave their country of relative safety, uh, as we have in, in the United States to go to Sudan and Chad and, and the Darfur and, and, uh, work in a refugee camp, uh, even though it was just for a short trip, but it, you know, it, they were so grateful that, and I wasn't doing anything special. I was just, um, helping pass out food rations, playing soccer with the kids, you know, assisting in the medical centers, like simple stuff that anybody could have done. And, uh, it was towards the end of that trip that I got, uh, I got malaria and this local family put me up and, 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 uh, I'm, I'm lying on this cot they set up for me in this, in this, in their mud hut and, uh, listening to the radio they put next to the cot. And the second battle of Fallujah was playing, um, on the BBC network. And it was like a sign for me. It was just, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if it was, uh, uh, Divine intervention, or just luck, or randomness—that that, that this uh, moment and where I was at physically and mentally kind of came together for this perfect storm of just like I—I I had clarity of what I was to do next all of a sudden, and it was it was gonna I was gonna join the military, so I came home and and signed up.
2: You know, and I went to a refugee camp when I in Rwanda, and you know, seeing stuff like that really does shape the way you look at life, shape that, you know, you come back to America and it it just really changes the way you think and and you just see life, you know, it it creates a different prism in which you view the world. You know, so so you talked about, you know, you went and then joined the military when you came back to the United States. You went through the Army Special Forces 18 x-ray program, is that correct? And then so talk about that, because my understanding is, you know, it took you, you went through about a year and a half for the special forces selection process, something that only handful, handful of people were able to do. That must've been incredibly intense then. Do you remember that? And then kind of going through that process? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. Know, right? no,
3: it, it wasn't, I mean, it was intense. And I think, I think some of the more intense parts of it were just the fact that I was now, you know, in the military at all. I mean, to go from, never really considering it genuinely uh, that I would do this with my life and feeling, feeling pretty disconnected from that world uh, and, and just not understanding what it would be like. And, you know, you, you you see what you see on movies and TV shows and and you hear what you hear, uh, whether it's through the news or through, you know, secondhand, thirdhand accounts, not, not so much people that have been there, especially at that time. I mean, this was, in 2004. So, um, we only been at war for uh, a little over, you know, two, two years, uh, maybe into three years. And so I didn't, I didn't know anybody that was on active duty that had been to Iraq or Afghanistan. Like I didn't know who to talk to, what to ask. I just didn't know much about it, but I just felt compelled to go do something and, uh, you know, fight for those that can't fight for themselves. Much like I I, uh, experienced with those people in, in the Darfur. Um, Course during the military, quite different than volunteering at a refugee camp. Uh, So, I, you know, I'd I'd read about the Special Forces, the 18 X ray program, as you mentioned, and I read about the Special Forces mission. The Green Berets uh, motto was De Oppresso Liber, which meant to free the oppressed. And, you know, that that sort of spoke to me like nothing else uh, really did within the the military construct. I, I, I was. Doing some research and just trying to figure out, like where, what what's going to be the right job for me? Like, what is going to make the most sense? Um, and beyond the the idea of being in an elite unit such as that, um, it was the piece of the mission that the special forces, the uh, in the army, um, what they actually do. There is a humanitarian element to the job. Uh, foreign internal defense is what it's called, and and essentially. I mean, when you go over there to Iraq or Afghanistan, you're, 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 you're training, um, you're often living, uh, with, um, and fighting alongside host nationals. So Afghans or Iraqis, depending on where you are, and they, in a sense, become your brothers in arms as well. And it's, um, it's, it's a very different experience than much of the military was, um, a part of at the time, you know, over the year the years the two decades really of war much of the military sort of adopted what the special forces were already doing that were working with partner forces um, and eventually as that mission developed into a train advise assist uh, mission you know they they were they were doing a lot of what uh, the special forces were doing from the very beginning and the special forces had been doing since vietnam really um, but but that part of it really kind of stuck out to me like all right well if i'm in iraq if i'm in afghanistan and i'm and I'm doing this job and I'm carrying out these orders and I'm, I'm at war. Uh, At least I'm doing so alongside the people that are going to be living there, the people that are trying to rebuild their own country as well. And that, um, that was of interest to me because I was like, I I mean, at the end of the day, that was, I think part of the ultimate goal, like, uh, instilling some pride in those, in in those people and trying to give them a fighting chance uh, to defend their own country. Of course, as we all know now that comes with a great amount of complication and um, it's certainly not an easy mission and the lack of resources. And honestly, like just the, 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 the lack of, um, pride that a lot of them have, you know, much different than we do have here in the States. It's it it was just an extremely challenging mission. And, um, I definitely want everybody listening that was a part of that to understand, um, feel like you did your best and we did everything that we could but it was just one of those things that uh is so much of it is out of our hands and i don't want to devolve into that conversation necessarily but um you know but i mean that was for me working alongside those people that that special forces mission really uh stuck out to me and really spoke to me and that's um that was what i wanted to do that was it was like kind of special forces or bust for me
2: quick break more with nate Do you feel like doing all this, I have found my mission in life? Because you had previously talked about, you know, kind of originally when you were younger, a young man, not really, you know, kind of feeling like you didn't know what your mission in life was and and sort of just figuring that out. Did this just sort of solidify that
3: this is my mission in life? I think uh, definitely at the time, at least it it was like, well, at least for now, I feel Um. I feel like I do have a specific mission and I feel like I do have a responsibility. I mean, that's part of what I needed that I didn't know was I needed some responsibility, uh, beyond taking care of myself. I needed something to, um, to feel like I was building, uh, you know, with a team or, or like a machine, a machine that I was a, a, an essential part of. And like, if I wasn't there, if this cog called Nate was missing the, uh, the train wouldn't run on time. You know what I mean? Like, I think that we all, seek that uh whether we know it or not in some way we want to feel like we matter and belong and all that stuff i just didn't know that's what it was and so at this time you know for the first time really uh, especially once i had the opportunity to go overseas and you're a part of this 12-man team um you, you, there's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders uh you've got the men on your left and right that you have to rely on but they rely on you as well um, and you just felt that connection to uh, something bigger than yourself and that, yeah, that strong sense of purpose, um, that I hadn't felt before. And, and, uh, you know, you develop this tightness with these people. I mean, I remember some of the conversations you'd have, for instance, on my first deployment to Iraq, uh, with people that I barely knew before we left and, you know, within weeks we're. Uh, sitting around the fire pit up on the rooftop, um, between missions. And we're talking about sharing things I've never shared with anybody else before about my, you know, my, my past, my future, my dreams, what, uh, what, what I, what I'm, what I care about, why I'm here. I mean, things that I'm much more open and vulnerable with today, uh, willing to talk about with almost anybody, but you know, at the time that was just not something I ever really did. And, you just feel this bond, um, that is unbreakable, uh, really. And, uh, and it's crazy because some of these people, even today, like, I don't, I won't talk to them for years and then we reconnect and it's like, there's never that, um, kind of small talk, awkward catch up. It's just like right back where we were, um, which is really, really crazy. So, so that was just, you know, that was something that I never really had before. I mean, I, you know, I played sports growing up and, Of course you've got your teams and all that but even at the high school level it's just very different i mean you're a high school kid too um but there's just not that that level of connection and i mean understanding that everything you do on a daily basis work-wise too uh it's life or death like the stakes are so high i mean you have to execute um you got to do your job uh at the at the highest level in the in the most efficient way possible Um, in the most creative way possible at times as well because of the lack of resources. And um, sometimes the the mission that's dictated to us, isn't super clear and we got to, we got to figure it out. All those things. uh, It's, it's, it's really interesting um, to just be around it and, and to, um, to have your, your best friends also be your heroes and your mentors and stuff like that Um, was was this quite a unique experience. Me. I
2: mean, I can't imagine having that kind of responsibility on your shoulders at, at such a young age. I would imagine that just leads to an incredible amount of camaraderie um, with the people that you're serving alongside. And, and what's interesting is, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later in the conversation. But, you know, and then you went on to go to the University of Texas. You walked on to the football team. And this will eventually kind of marry these different worlds that you've lived in, you know, A veteran as well as an athlete. Uh, But talk about walking on to the University of Texas. Uh, You went on to actually become a starting long snapper, but kind of talk about that journey. And then when you got done with the military and then, you know, turning to
3: football. Yeah, that, uh, that was, (laughs) it was definitely an interesting, an interesting turn. And one that I, I struggled with uh, and still do at times, uh, you know, with some of the the guilt of sort of leaving um, the military. I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of service members, a lot of warfighters, feel that, and that's why some of them can't leave. You know, some of them stay in for decades. Uh, a lot of it is like uh, beyond them genuinely enjoying what they do or feeling that sense of purpose. It's the I can't leave these people behind. Like I'm a part of this now, um, and that includes the people also wearing camouflage uh, that you're, that you uh, brothers in arms with, but also the people overseas, you know, that you're meant to defend. Uh, I think that that, that a tough one. And I was actually, uh, towards the end of a deployment overseas and I was, uh, 28 years old and trying to figure out what I was going to do next, you know, with my life. And, um, I finally had this desire to go to college and, And even bigger than that, even though it sounds smaller than that and more childish, I had this desire and dream of playing football. Uh, I'd actually never played uh, growing up. I I played baseball. I played basketball. I played pretty much every other sport you can imagine, but I never played football. And I regretted it because it was my favorite sport. You know, when I was real little, my my mom didn't necessarily want me to play. And and as I grew uh, and had that opportunity, even in middle school, I think I was just afraid that uh, I would get cut or I'd ride the bench or whatever. I, you know, I put way too much stock in sports as a, as a kid, like it meant way too much to my life um, sort of my life revolved around it. And, uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's at the end of the day, like sports are very important and a, a huge part of our culture and, and you know, obviously, we just had the World Cup, and you could just, you know, that's a worldwide thing as well, on um, the way that that those events bring people together. But, but also, um, yeah, I just I put way too much pressure on myself around that stuff. And now at this age, you know, I'm 20, I'm about to turn 29. Uh, I'm just like, you know what? Just go. So you weren't the youngest it. player. You, is what you're saying.
2: Yeah. you weren't the youngest player. No. <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, I was certainly not. I was, I, you know, I was, I was the oldest, I was the oldest guy on the team. I was uh, probably the oldest player in college football at the time. Uh, although I did see a, a story a couple of days ago, There's a player uh, that's, I think he's 30 now that's uh, playing. He was playing at Buffalo. He was a, a former Navy SEAL and he's playing football at Buffalo. I think it's his senior year though, but that's pretty cool. Um, anyway. Yeah. So I just, I was like, you know, what, just go for it. So I, I got out. I came off of active duty. I ended up re-enlisting in the National Guard. So I, I was still in the military while I was at Texas um, and did deploy a couple of times um, while in college even. But, you know, it was still making that transition back to civilian life in a sense. And, um, and going to college at 29, it was a weird transition I mean the other freshmen are 10 years younger than me. Um, and I'm walking around school with a backpack like everybody else. Maybe a little bit of gray in my beard, but, um, you know, feeling like, uh, uh, some hope and promise and all those things that a lot of young people feel when they first go to college. And, uh, uh, but the bigger part of it, like I said, was football. I just wanted to play and was fortunate enough to make the team, you know, went to tryouts and got on the squad. And, you know, I was on, I was on the scout team for that first year. So just to practice, uh, on the practice team and, uh, you know, was, was fortunate enough to be asked to run the team out of the tunnel with the American flag, kind of lead them out on every home game, but I wasn't playing. And then my sophomore year, I started long snapping uh, just to find a way on the field. It's a pretty thankless job for those that don't know. You're, you're the guy that hikes you between his legs for punts and field goals and extra points. Uh, but it's an important job. You got to be consistent. You got to be accurate. Uh, you got to be good at what you do. Uh, it's just thankless. You know, nobody, nobody cares until you do it wrong. And I had no problem with that. I'd done plenty of thankless jobs in the military uh, in the past, so I just wanted to find a way on the field and play. And this was my opportunity. So, uh, yeah. So I started for for three years at Texas. Um, and by the way, the Longhorns uh, played tonight. I don't know if this will be running uh, at the time, <laughs> but hopefully they've already won by the time that this comes out um, in the, the Alamo Bowl against Washington. But Uh, But yeah, you know, it was just like I'd never really been to Texas. I'd never I just I wanted to play for the Longhorns because it was uh, sort of this legendary program. And I saw so many Longhorn flags and ball caps overseas when I was in Iraq among people in the Army. It was sort of felt like the Army's favorite team. So it just made sense for me uh, to to try to go there and, and be a part of that and uh and i loved it i mean i loved i loved going to school in austin i loved uh the university of texas it was a great 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 university and um yeah just getting the opportunity to play football and live out that dream uh was really special quick commercial break stay with us
0: this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global
2: I feel like it's got to hurt really bad to get tackled.
3: My voice (laughs) can't be good. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I got run over quite a bit at practice. You know, I mean, I was supposed to be doing the tackle lead. um, But the reality was, you know, these, these young men were a lot bigger, stronger, faster, more athletic, just better at football than me. And so I was on the losing end of a lot of those collisions. I'll say that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Can't, can't feel good. And then you went on to be in the NFL with the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, what was, I mean, for someone who obviously always kind of, you know, loved football or always kind of had this dream, uh, that had been pretty cool to then have accomplished, you know, getting into the NFL as well.
3: Yeah, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was a dream. A dream come true, I think. I think a lot of, a lot of people, uh, a lot of young people specifically, you know, that's just like when you're a kid, that's what you want to do. You want to play, you want to be a pro athlete, you know you look up to these athletes, they're, they're heroes to you. Um, and, and that's, that's what I wanted to do as a kid. Um, I think in college when I was actually playing and doing that, I didn't think that that was an actual possibility. Um, until I I got asked to play in the senior all-star game out in Charleston, uh, called the medal of honor bowl. So it was hosted by the medal of honor society. Uh, the game was only played for I think two or three years but it was at the Citadel. Uh, it was just really, really unique opportunity to play one last game. Um, and it was just kind of, you know, for fun, it it was a, it's not a bowl game. It's a, it's, they they call them these senior all-star games. And, uh, what was really important about that week though, were the practices. Um, because a bunch of NFL scouts were coming to the practices and watching these players and evaluating talent. And, um, I actually had four NFL teams, even though I just turned 34 years old. I had four NFL teams meet with me and said they were actually interested in, uh, in me as a player, you know, as a long snapper. Uh, and they, they all said kind of the same thing. Look, you're a little old, you're small, you're going to have to put some weight on, uh, but you're a good snapper and you know, you should go for it. And so I did it. And I, and I kind of just spent the next four months putting on a bunch of weight i gained like 30 pounds and it wasn't all good weight but it was necessary and uh and i kind of just you know i transitioned out of the military by that time at february of 2015 that was the end of my military service and i got signed with the seahawks uh during the draft i think early may of 2015 um, and it was actually known as the greatest day in sports history at the time it was kind of cool it was The Kentucky Derby was that day. Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather had an epic fight. Um, There were like Game 7s in the NBA and hockey uh, playoffs and all that. And, of course, Nate Boyer was signed uh, to the Seahawks as an undrafted free agent, (laughs) which for me was a big day. Uh, Maybe not for everybody else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was cool. So it was a a bit – yeah, I took my dad to a Caps game before Christmas, and I literally had no idea that Ovechkin was so close to – beating or getting to the I guess the second highest scoring goal and uh goal score. And he got to eight oh two, which meant that now he's right behind Wayne Gretzky. And uh it ended up being like a, a hugely epic night. Like my dad was so stoked. It was it was cool. I got super lucky <laughs> that it ended up being such a big night. But
3: that is good yeah. cool.
2: I wanted to ask you before we get into MVP and, and the movie. Uh, so like, obviously I'm just going to preface it. Not a fan of Colin Kaepernick ever since he, he wore the socks depicting cops as pig, just don't respect the dude. But you had written this open letter to him in the army times, which led to him then inviting you out for a conversation. Kind of talk about the, the letter and then sort of what transpired after that.
3: This was about a year later. So I, I you know, I was with the Seahawks um, in 2015 yeah, pl- played uh, in, in the. Uh, I was in OTAs, training camp. I got to play in one game in the preseason, and it was an amazing opportunity. You know, I, I once again, just like in college, I was asked to lead the team out of the tunnel with the American flag, and then we're standing on the sideline before the game, and the anthem starts playing. And uh, for me, you know, in college, the the players are not on the field when they, they play the anthem in the stadium. Uh, obviously, in the NFL, it's very different. I think everybody who's watches football at any level is aware now that very aware now that the anthem is played uh, on the sideline with the players there out there on the field. And when it started playing, I, you know, I found the tallest flag in the building. I put my hand on my heart and as the song played, I started crying. I just was like thinking about, you know, friends of mine that were still serving I mean, men and women, not too they're all over the, the country that were still serving those that didn't make it back, including some, some of those people that I, that i knew and and those that were were back home but were struggling with uh that transition and all those things kind of ran through my head and i just was like i i wanted people to feel what i was feeling out there on the field like you know hope and possibility and i wanted people to chase their american dreams too and um it just was like a powerful moment for me fast forward to almost exactly a year later during the preseason and You know, Colin Kaepernick is uh, sitting on the bench during the anthem, um, in protest of uh, police brutality, social, uh, uh, you know, racial inequality, social injustice, all of those things. And it's of course a very divisive time already, uh, and a divisive topic. I mean, you you know, we all know that. Like, everybody kind of has a different uh, opinion and take on uh, on that whole situation. And you know, I got reached out to by a bunch of. Uh, news, news organizations, uh, and I think what they wanted me to do uh, was maybe come on their show and, and debate the topic of anthem protests. And I understand why. I mean, it's a it's an interesting topic, and there's a lot of opinions uh, surrounding that and all that. and And I just didn't want to be a part of that conversation because I had my own opinion, as everybody does, about about you know situations like that. But also, um. I I'm I I tend to stay out of uh, political discussions for the most part. You know, I, I I kind of I've got my own opinions. I'm my own person, and you know, I believe what I believe uh, on on every topic. And and I think everybody should do that. I think everybody should uh, have their own genuine uh, feeling and opinion, and not feel pressured to to believe one way or the other. Um, and you know, I so I just said no, I don't want to do that. And in the Army Times, they kept hitting me up saying, hey, would you just write an, or an article, an open letter, whatever you want to write, op-ed, you know? And, uh, and I said, okay, fine, I'll write something. So what I did was I just wrote an open letter to Colin Kaepernick uh, as if it was, if I, you know, I had him sitting in front of me in a few minutes to kind of share, share my, my feelings on the, on the matter and why I believe what I believe. And, you know, I talked about the Darfur. I talked about my time there uh, and dealing with, with that and, and seeing that type of oppression, um, of people, I mean, 300,000 people have been murdered in this genocide, and women and children are left as refugees, and you know that's what this camp consisted of. But there's still there's still um, a, a, a level of hope there, and, and there's people trying to do everything they can to to help the situation, and um, and it, you know, and then of course my time overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you know, working with Iraqis and Afghans, people with different opinions, different cultures and customs that I don't necessarily understand or even agree with, but have to respect at some level um, and have to figure out a way to work together. Uh, and uh, and then I said, look, on this matter, you know, to me, this is why um, the, the, the flag means so much to me and the anthem it, it's because of my experience, you know, my, my connection to it. Uh, I carried a, a casket. Uh, with my best friend in it draped in an American flag. Right. Um, when I hear the anthem as I did in that game, it just hits different for me because of my experience, you know, because of what I did. And, uh, and, and it's a very sensitive and emotional and meaningful, um, symbol. Those symbols are to a lot of people uh, and, and not only people that serve in the military, but certainly a good amount of them. And I said, uh, look, you know, look at the, at the end of the day, that's my experience and that's why I feel the way way that I feel. Um, and I understand that everybody feels that way. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's important to understand that, but, but, uh, and I also said that, you know, I look forward to the day that you're inspired to stand again when the anthem plays, I'll be standing right there next to you. Um, and he actually read the open letter as, as a lot of people did it, the, the sports journalism world actually pushed it out quite a bit it was it became quite viral in, in a matter of 24 hours and, and Collins publicist reached out and said, Hey, look, he's got a game tomorrow, but he wants to meet you down in San Diego before they play the chargers, uh, in their final preseason game. And he wants to sit down and have a conversation with you. And I said, well, is there going to be like media around or anything like that? And they're like, no, 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 it's nothing like that. He genuinely is inspired by the letter and he just wants to talk. So I go down to San Diego we meet in the lobby of the team hotel alongside Eric Reed uh, one of his teammates and you know we had a very uh, very open conversation about this whole thing i mean honestly it was like two guys sitting in the locker room trying to understand one another who have different backgrounds and experiences and all these things and you know to be honest he had, a, he, had a, he respected me he had a lot of respect for for what i did in the military and um, and all that and i respected him as a player i mean i was a huge 49er fan i pulled for for Colin ever since he played at you know University of Nevada Reno, and went on to the 49ers, which was my favorite team. Kind of brought us back from being an okay, not so great team to so the Super Bowl, almost winning it. And so, as a player, you know, I, I looked up to him uh, as an athlete. And now that I was kind of sitting down with him and hearing why he was doing what he was doing, I respected his you know opinions and 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 and, and reasons for what why he was doing what he was what he was doing. Uh, of course, you know sitting out during the anthem was tough for me because of how that makes me feel and how a lot of people uh, not just in the military but just people in general uh, feel and you know i i i just when he asked me point blank you know i didn't really give my opinion until he asked but he asked me um you know well do you think there's another way i can protest that's not going to offend people in the military and i said no no matter what you do some people are going to be offended i mean this is something that's very sacred to a lot of people and Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, when I look up at the stands during a football game, it's like, I see people of all different races and backgrounds and, uh, you know, a lot of them are wearing the same Jersey and they kind of put aside those differences for three hours to, to watch a football game. And it's like a uniting time for us. Uh, it's the only, one of the only places that, you know, in the first quarter you could spill beer on the guy sitting next to you and he's hugging you in the fourth quarter because your team scored the game winning touchdown. Like that's a very special thing, you know? Um, and I mean, he understood that of course, I mean, this is the game that he, you know, he played and, um, and he said, well, you know, I, I just, I, I, I want to find a way uh, to, to not offend people in the military. You know, that was something that really mattered to him. And I was like, well, I, I respect that. I said, if you're asking my opinion, I think, you know, sitting on the bench maybe isn't the most inspiring thing kind of isolated by yourself. I think you need to be alongside your teammates, whatever you do. I think that's important. It's an important message for people in the country. Like we don't always have to agree, but sometimes we have to work together, you know, and we've got to put that stuff behind us and try to move forward as one and and Colin, uh, agreed that that was important. And, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the next part of the the discussion was like, well, what what the, what am I going to do? I mean, I, I committed to not standing. I said I'm not going to stand until things change. You know, and that's something that it's important to call in. And I said, well, you know, if you're not going to stand, I think the only other option that makes sense would be taking a knee. Uh, I mean. I don't see it personally as disrespectful, just the, the, the idea of kneeling and I mean, people take a knee to pray and propose their future spouse. And when a player is hurt on the field in a football game, people take a knee out of respect. And when I go to Arlington to visit my buddy, Brad, uh, I take a knee in front of, uh, you know, his, his, uh, grave to pay respects. Um, so I, I think that that is, uh, you know, I think it's a good adjustment personally. I think it shows that you're willing to, um, to, to, to change and, and, uh, sort of find a middle ground here. And, you know, and, and that was just kind of on a whim. I was asked a question and I answered and, 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 you know what I thought was a good solution at the time. Uh, and of course it wasn't seen that way by a lot of people. And I totally respect that as well. Um, a lot of people were very, very upset that, you know, he still wasn't, you know, he wouldn't stand and, um, and a lot of people were upset with me for even meeting with them and having a conversation and suggesting this kneeling that, you know, that this kneeling was a terrible, terrible idea, still very disrespectful and all that. And, and I, and I understand that. Um, but I, I don't think a lot of people understand the full context of the, of the conversation and of the moment. Um, you know, Colin and I, we're not, we're not close. We haven't spoken a long time. Um, and, you know, it was just that was really the only time we ever met face to face, and and the kneeling, you know, coming out of that is is interesting because it's kind of, I mean, it's it was a global thing. You know, it really uh, even up through this World Cup this year, there was there's teams out there that that, that sort of take a, a moment of silence and take a knee out of respect and. Uh, You know, it's, it's a tough one. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that are still very upset with me (laughs) and making that suggestion, but it was just, I was just trying to calm the situation. I was trying to find a way for us to work together. I still am. I'm very dedicated to that as a human being. Um, I just want to see us move forward as a country and uh, respect one another, even if we don't always agree.
2: No, and I totally, um, I think you've earned the right, (laughs) having served our country as a Green Beret, uh, to have your opinion on this, obviously. And have your perspective. I guess the way I've always looked at him and I and I still do, even after the conversation of you know, the context is you had mentioned previously of, you know, people taking the knee, I I view out of those those were out of respect. And I think what he he was doing was not out of respect to the country in my opinion. And I just I, I have a hard time seeing how someone who had two parents who loved him worth tens of millions of dollars is somehow uh, oppressed. So, you know, and and I I think a large part of, you know, why, you know, there used to be a time where sports brought us together. Now it divides us among everything else is in a large part uh, because of him. So I just, I really, you know, I I try to respect people of all sorts, but I I just, I have a really hard time uh, reaching any level of respect uh, for that man. But I I see your opinion and, you know, obviously have a great deal of respect for you and everything you've done to the country. And so, You know, I I think you are fully, fully, you know, fully with respect to to have your opinion um, on the issue. But you know, I I wanted to get into. I I don't want to spend too much time talking about someone I dislike. So (laughs) we'll we'll get into. You know, so and then you know, after all this, so you know, we'll kind of skip a couple of steps because again, you literally have like the most interesting uh, life story, uh, and have done so many interesting things in your life. But you got into acting. You also did NFL a network series called Indivisible, but you also started this amazing organization called Merging Vets and Players with Fox Sports, uh, NFL insider Jay Glazer. And, and it's really cool because this organization has kind of combines these worlds that you've lived in, combines the world of a veteran who is sort of trying to figure out what's next after leaving the military, uh, along with, you know, NFL players that sort of have a, a a similar experience and sort of figuring out what is next after their time in the NFL, you know, talk a little bit more about this organization, why you started it and and why it means so much to
3: you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Lisa, you know, it's MVP, you know, it was really something that, that, that I kind of needed. Um, you know, it stands for merging vets and players. We bring together combat vets and former professional athletes and help them find purpose and identity when they lose a uniform. And that's how I felt when I lost a uniform and I lost, both of these uniforms in the same year, as mentioned, you know, in 2015, I left the military, um, and mm-hmm. I left and football, I, you know, I was released, I was cut, uh, it was over and not on my terms. And, and it was hard. You know, I was 34 years old. I felt like I had a lot of life left to live and, and a lot of, a lot left to give as well. Considered going back in the military. Um, just trying to find my place and, and Jay Glazer, uh, who I trained with to prepare for that opportunity in, in football with the Seahawks, uh, you know, he had this idea of like bringing these groups together, bringing athletes and vets together, you know, a very similar, um, storyline as far as your career ends at a pretty young age, you have to sacrifice quite a bit to be elite. Um, of course, we would never compare war to playing sports. Like those are completely different things. The battlefield, the ball field, we always make that distinction very clear that those are not the same, but the locker rooms are similar. Um, the identity with the uniform, um, you know, and feeling as though you're part of something, uh, having that mission and purpose um, and identity, and losing it is is a very similar struggle that both groups uh, deal with, and it's tough. Uh, it's really tough. And and you know, talk about uh, diversity, <laughs> the the military, uh, and and a sport, and a, and a and a, and an NFL locker room. Some of the most diverse microcosms in the country. Yet these people find a way. To work together you know they find a way um, to put some of those things aside and like see it through as a team and you know would be willing on a battlefield uh, specifically you know willing to lay down your life for somebody that you don't even necessarily like or agree with and you still do it and that doesn't only consist of uh, the people that you're fighting alongside that it consists of almost every you know every american back home the, the, the people that you're, you're fighting for that's really unique um, and then losing that you know, feeling as though like, this is, it's so important what I do and what I'm a, what I'm a part of is so, um, is so necessary. And, you know, we have this full, full volunteer force. Um, and I am, I am a part of this powerful, important, um, community, uh, and tribe. And, you know, i wear this American flag on my shoulder with a great amount of pride and and then it's gone you know and you don't know where to go and you know we do a great job of training these people and preparing them uh for 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 combat preparing them to go do that Um, but what we haven't figured out and mastered is that transition how are we preparing these people for the next phase you know how are we preparing these people when they lose the uniform um and i understand that you know the goal uh, and the idea of is to keep people in. You know, they got to focus on retention. We've got to focus on the mission at hand. It's hard to put a lot of energy into um, when these people transition out of that thing. And the same goes for sports. It's like our focus is to go win the Super Bowl. You know, it's not to care for uh, the guys that used to play for us. And so it, it becomes challenging. So that's why you need organizations like MVP. And we're not the only one. There's thousands of organizations and, and you know veteran service organizations specifically that do a lot of great stuff. Um, but it, it's up to us. It's up to us as the American people to, um, to be there for them. And, you know, that's why we started MVP. We wanted to be there for these, for these warriors. And, uh, you know, most of our members are veterans, but there's a good amount of athletes too. And they don't, a lot of them don't have those resources. And I, to your point earlier, you know, a lot of them, not all of them, but a, a good amount of them get paid a lot of money, uh, to play a game, you know? And so that's a tough one for them as well, uh, to, to even, put themselves in the same sentence as someone who served in the military. Uh, but the reality is that not all of them have that story. Not all of them got to, you know, got paid millions of dollars to play their sport. And most of them have such a great respect for the veterans. And a lot of veterans, a lot of in the military have good amount of respect for athletes. I mean, for me, it was a big escape when I was overseas watching football. Um, it kind of helped me turn things off and focus on something different outside of what I was you know, dealing with it war, and uh, and so the organization now. I mean, we're in eight cities across the country, um, you know, eight physical chapters, but we're also available to anybody anywhere in the country who qualifies for our program. It's absolutely free uh, for these vets and athletes. Um, vetsandplayers.org is the website, by the way. Uh, but two years ago, we decided to make a movie, <laughs> kind of telling our story about how this started. It was in the middle of pandemic you know, as you know, and everybody knows everything was shut down. Um, I was living in Los Angeles, which was completely, you know, closed <laughs> and locked up. And there was a lot of people, a lot of veterans, um, who were working in that industry that were like, man, I just want to make something. I just want to, I want to get back to work. I want to go. And, uh, and so I said, well, let's, let's do it. Let's do it together. So we did like mo- most of the, to make this movie, first of all, we had very little money and resources, but we had a lot of passion and people that knew how to to overcome obstacles, and most of the crew were veterans. Um, every veteran portrayed on screen in the MVP movie is played by an actual vet. You know, it's a scripted narrative film. It's not a documentary, uh, but it feels like it because it's the real people playing themselves, uh, and a lot of these athletes as well. I mean, half the half the crew from Fox NFL Sundays in the movie: um, Michael Strahan, Howie Long, Jade Glazer. Um, so many others, you know, Tony Gonzalez and Randy Couture two hall of fame, elite athletes play themselves in the movie as well. And, um, it's really, it was really special to get it done, but it's it's about a Marine who was living in a homeless shelter and an NFL player first year out of the league. And both of them are just lost. You know, can't figure out how to move forward, have, have lost their identity and their team, their uniform, and they meet one another and realize that even though on paper, we got nothing in common, we're going through the same stuff and they help each other through it and really, uh, form this, this tribe, uh, of vets and athletes. And that is the story of MVP. It's how, uh, we began. And, and I encourage everybody to go watch it. It's out. It's everywhere right now, streaming uh, video on demand. Most people are watching it on Amazon prime, but you can watch it, um, almost anywhere. Uh, and you know, we, we really encourage you to, to watch that movie, to go check out MVP merging vets and players, uh, through our website as well, vetsandplayers.org. And just support us in any way you can. And if you know vets and athletes that qualify for our program, send them our way. We'd love to connect them and uh, uh, with our group and, and help them with that transition. Well,
2: and I love what your organization does and what the movie highlights as well, because it, it kind of goes back to when we started off the conversation of when you had just moved to Los Angeles before you know he joined the military before you did all these things of really just trying to find your purpose in life. And so I think it's so important in, in what you're doing to try to bring purpose to people after, you know, sort of leaving these really huge careers and, and kind of figuring out what's next or, or maybe feeling a little bit lost or feeling like they've kind of lost that purpose in life. So I
3: think that's just so important. I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. You know, transitions are just tough for anybody, for any, any human being, you know, especially when you do something at a high level and you feel like this is important. What I do every day is important. It matters, uh, especially if you haven't felt that earlier in your life. And then you do feel it. And then you're, you're back into trying to find something that, uh, makes you feel that same way, you know, that you are making a difference. And it's tough when you feel like you've peaked at 25 years old, which a lot of veterans and athletes feel that's crazy. I mean, there's a lot of life left to live and no one should feel that way. You should feel as though you're just getting started, you know? Um, but that's how a lot of these people feel like I've, I'll never be great again. And that I've already done the, the, <laughs> I've already reached the peak. There's just, there's no more mountains to climb and that's tough. Man. And, and then that's a lot of the reason that, you know, the veteran suicide epidemic is, is still a, a major issue. A lot of these athletes as well, um, not just, you know, suicide, but, uh, you know, the, 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 levels of, of sort of depression and disconnection and feeling like you don't belong and nobody cares about you anymore. Um, and you're just, you know, you were just a, a piece of equipment and now you're kind of tossed to the wayside, that's tough, you know. I mean, we I think we're all uh, vets and athletes. Uh, we we all maybe at some level did feel like a piece of equipment that was uh, utilized, but you know, equipment can be repurposed, and it's important that we did, we do that all the time. We you know we repurpose military equipment into other things, uh, and everybody loves that. But it's like people need to be repurposed as well, uh, and and we're all capable of it. Uh, it takes us wanting to take that step and make that change and. And kind of move forward but it also takes organizations and groups of people who have their back and let them know that this is available and that we got you uh and, and you know that's that's something that's that's extremely vital uh, in this time especially uh with the war ending last year and in the manner that it did you know it's really tough for a lot of people to feel that from this 20-year war that what they did actually at the end of the day even did matter you know a lot of them feel like we did this for nothing. You know, my buddies died for nothing. And it's not true. It's not true, but it, it feels that way. And it can feel that way. And that's, that's incredibly hard to come to grips with. But, but people need to understand these, these vets and, and, uh, and even these athletes that, you know, what they did in their past, is not who they are. Um, who they are is a person that overcame so much uh, and survive so much to to get back here and uh, and there's still a lot left to give, and we need you we need you to help lead this country <laughs> you know back to where it needs to be um It takes all of us and and I think especially these military veterans especially these these people that put their lives on the line and and sacrifice so much um you're the ones that that we need to step up here and uh and we want to look up to you and um and we need leaders and 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 you are those people. Nate
2: Boyer, you're only 41. I I think you've found a lot of purpose in life. Uh, You have already done so many incredible things. Uh, Just deeply, deeply respect your service to the country and then what you're doing to just continue to help people who have also served. Uh, You're an awesome guy. Incredible story. Everyone go out and watch MVP. Thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate you giving us your time and, and sharing with us your story.
3: Of course, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It really means a lot.
2: watch the movie uh show him some support obviously it's done a lot for our country uh deeply respect the guy just also seems like a a super nice guy i want to thank you guys at home for listening every monday and thursday but you can listen throughout the week i want to thank john casio my producer for putting the show together and all the hard work that he puts into it uh feel free to leave us a review give us a rating on apple Podcasts. i love hearing from you and, and hearing your thoughts i appreciate you guys listening take care
1: it's Zumo Play.
0: information.